VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech this week. And we have a lot for you. On this pod, which you're about to hear, we have a visitor, a flying visit all the way from Britain, which you'll hear shortly. But also, we have an extra pod alert, bonus pod. So some point this weekend, probably Saturday, I'd guess, there will be another one that pops up in your feed, and this is kind of an accompaniment, a little appetizer, side dish, to a piece that I've written for the Sunday Times magazine. So do keep an eye out and an ear out for that. But now, let's get to today's show. Yo, technology, what is it all about? I think that they said something along the lines of like, you make your business sound way better than it actually is, uh, which which we thought was like kind of a backhander compliment. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it also goes to show that we didn't really know what we were doing at the time. Thank you for tuning in. We have a great one for you this week. Hiroki Takauchi is here. And Hiroki is the founder of Go Cardless, which is the biggest fintech company that you have never heard of. They're a payment processor. They're kind of the financial plumbing of the internet, of the internet like Stripe. And you may re- recall that we had Patrick Collison, the founder of that company, on here last year. But Hiroki has a great story to tell. He actually set up the company originally with Tom Blomfield, who went on to found Monzo, the big online bank, and Matt Robinson, who went on to start Nested, the estate agency. So in a way, these guys are, you know, they've been compared to basically Britain's version of the PayPal mafia. And Hiroki was the one who stayed with the original idea and what GoCardless specializes in is really recurring payments. So in this world of subscriptions, it's a good place to be. He just raised 75 million bucks from GV, which is the artist formerly known as Google Ventures, uh, as well as Salesforce Ventures and some other folks. So he has a great story to tell. He also has a, a quite moving and inspiring personal story because a couple years ago, he was in a cycling accident that left him wheelchair bound. And so we talk about coming through that and how that changed his perspective on life and also his startup and all the other ups and downs of just starting a company and uh, getting to where it's got. So without further ado, I give you Hiroki Takauchi. So we're sitting here in San Francisco. Yeah. Downtown. But you were here initially with Go Cardless many moons ago, weren't you? Didn't I think I read that you 
came here initially with Y Combinator, is that Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah. So we, we, we did Y Combinator when we first started the company in 2011. And we spent a summer out here going through the, the YC program, which was a, an amazing experience. Can you give me the, the kind of the good, the bad, the ugly of that experience? Well, it's interesting because when we were first starting out, I was dead set on doing YC. And that was because a few years before we started Go Cardless, I'd actually interned at a company out here in 2007 that was set up by some friends of mine for, that were at Oxford with me. Oh, okay. And they were going through YC at the time. 2007 was, you know, really early Those for YC. when it started? Was that yeah, the year so it started or I, I think it started around? in 2005 or 2006. Right, so it was yeah. one of the first batches. It was really obvious to me that there was something really special about it. That experience really uh, left a mark on me. And I thought, okay, well, if ever I start something, then you know, I definitely want to go through the YC program. And so that, that, that's a big part of why we, we applied was because of that. And at the time, YC was... It was kind of well-known, but like not super well-known, yeah. especially in Europe, right? Yeah. And so we, we applied. We got lucky, lucky enough to get onto the program. It involved coming out here uh, for about two and a half months. It was a really cool experience because it was, it was quite sort of unstructured. So, you know, they want you to focus on building the business. And, yeah. you know, obviously that makes sense. But you'd have these kind of weekly dinners where you'd go, they'd make this like huge pot of chili. Then they'd invite all these founders uh, from uh, Silicon Valley's top companies to come and tell their story of, you know, gotcha. how they got started. So we had like Mark Zuckerberg come, came. We had Max Levchin that came. We had all yeah, these Zuckerberg kind of, there. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was really cool. And it was... It, it was weird because like even in 2011 he was a, a huge yeah. household name right and um and yeah he just kind of rocked up uh, in his hoodie i think he'd just sort of like driven over <laughs> himself it was a, there was no yeah, yeah you, you kind of expect like a bit more of an aura around these people but he was yeah. just super like down to earth and normal um i think that was really valuable because alongside hearing all these stories of you know and, and generally speaking you know there's the kind of the pr story and then the, the real story and yc's got a good way of kind of getting the real story out of, out of these founders and you hear about the mistakes that were made and you know the lessons that were learned and it, it makes it all feel a bit more real and a bit more achievable right um right so so i think that was super valuable but then alongside those dinners they also have a partnership that are the wisest members of silicon valley in many ways that you're able to go to for advice and you know they definitely helped to shape how we thought about building our business in the early days so was that what you started out with did it change dramatically to what it is from from then to what it is today? Yes and no. When we first started, we started with a slightly different idea, right? So, so when did you start the company? Well, we first started working together on a company, so Matt, Tom, and myself, at the beginning of 2011. Right, um, and so just for January. people who don't know, who are Matt and Tom? Uh, so Matt and Tom are my co-founders. Both have gone on to, to do some really cool things as well. So Tom uh, set up a company called Monzo that's doing incredibly well. And then Matt has set up a company called Nested, which is a little bit earlier stage, but yeah. also doing phenomenally well. So the three of us started a company together. And, and initially, it was a bit different. It was The idea was to help informal groups to collect payments. So you know this was something that personally we'd all kind of had trouble with so you know being a member of like a captain of your local sports team yeah. you know running a student society that kind of thing trying to collect payments in those sort of situations was challenging and awkward and we thought okay well maybe there's an idea there my and brother my brother used to be in um politics like local politics okay, and fundraising yeah, yeah. and ngos and stuff and i was always amazed because he was really good at just being like if people are in the room and they've come to an event and they said they were going to pay mm. he would just go get the money yeah person by person yeah because once people leave 
It's like, oh, 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 I haven't, I haven't paid you or yeah, whatever. Exactly, you have to chase exactly. people, and it's a whole. Yeah, it's thing. a very awkward conversation, yeah, and, and yeah. I, I, I hate awkward conversations. So you know, that was yeah. that was one of the drivers. But but as we kind of went through YC, which we applied with that idea, it was a group payments idea. We basically learned that it was not a great idea for various reasons. It sounds like it's a little bit like a newsroom. If you have a bad idea in a newsroom, it's pretty unalloyed in terms <laughs> of the feedback. Yeah, yeah. Is YC similar? So they're definitely uh, very honest in their feedback. Um, I, I really remember um, one of the funniest memories I have is when we were doing, so in the run-up to Demo Day, this is the kind of thing yeah. that YC culminates in where you're invest- pitching to a room full of the, the top investors in Silicon Valley, and they have this practice Demo Day where it's all the founders of the companies practicing their pitches and i mean it was literally it was brutal because it was just literally everyone one by one going getting up giving their pitch and then paul graham who was the founder of yc he would just give this super brutal feedback and it was always bang on the money but what was your feedback (laughs) um do you remember i can't remember what I think that they said something along the lines of like, y- you make your business sound way better than it actually is, uh, which which we thought was like kind of a backhanded compliment. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we, I think it also goes to show that we didn't really know what we were doing at the time. But yeah, um, but yeah so, so we were kind of going through the program. We, learned, we realized this idea we were working on didn't really make sense. But at the same time, we'd obviously been figuring out how payments worked and learning more about the whole payments industry. And we realized that the way that everyone was collecting payments online, which was using credit and debit cards, worked really well in certain use cases. So things like e-commerce or mm-hmm. you know more kind of retail type experiences. But in a bunch of other use cases, it just wasn't the right way to do it at all. And that was what we found in the group payments space as well. And so we started to get access to these direct debit systems and learn how they all worked. And we realized that it was just like a really horrible, broken system that no one had really paid any attention to. But at its core was a a really fantastic way of collecting payment. And so we kind of switched the idea halfway through YC and decided to focus on just building a a simple technology platform that made it really easy to collect payment this way. And that's really where the genesis of GoCardless was in, in the, I guess, the summer of 2011 when we were doing YC. So what is it today? Say I, I'm going to make up a business. I sell artisanal cheeses yep. online. Okay. Yeah. So how do you help me if I have a subscription cheese business? Yeah, so, well, I mean, we work with a lot of businesses like this uh, where food boxes, coffee, wine, beer. Like, yeah, 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 there's you, a subscription you, you, for everything. There's a subscription for everything now. Um, <laughs> and the way we would work with a business like that is that, you know, obviously they need to be able to collect payment for those boxes of cheese they're sending you every week or every month. And um, doing that using credit cards is a really bad idea because it's a piece of plastic card that you can lose and that expires. And so actually, you know, obviously as a consumer, you wouldn't think about it that often, but everyone's kind of gone through that experience of, okay, like I've gone out on a night out and I've lost my card and now all of my subscriptions don't work and I have to go and manually put all of my details back in again. And that's really frustrating for the customer, but it's also a real big problem for the the business as well, right? right? And so what we enable is that instead of doing that, you put in your bank account details when you're setting up the transaction, which is you know the way that a lot of bigger domestic companies have always done it, right? So it does feel like there's more of that because speaking from personal experience, mm-hmm. I just had my account hacked and was given a new card. Yeah, and I was like, oh man, I have to go to set up all these direct debits yeah. again, and I hadn't realized that a lot of them now 
are just straight with my bank details. So it mm. actually didn't exactly. matter. Well, maybe we're powering some of them. So, uh, <laughs> but the, uh, yeah, and so we provide the software and, and the access to these payment systems for the business. So we, we kind of generally are a little bit more business facing than consumer yeah. facing. If I'm, I don't know, PG&E or British Gas or whatever, I mean, surely it can't be that hard for me as a big business to be like, okay, we'll just take, we'll just process these payments ourselves. We'll just ask people for their bank details. So where, what gap are you filling? From the customer and the consumer perspective, it's very, it's very simple, but yeah. behind the scenes there's a lot of like heavy lifting that's going on to make that work. So it's really the technology platform that enables these these businesses to do that easily that we've created right so there's there's a bunch of problems that we solve the first is that actually for a lot of businesses they've not historically not been able to get access to these systems in the first place right so if you're british gas yeah sure that like you can go to the bank and say hey i want access to this system but if you think about the level of trust that's required to just enable someone to pull money out of everyone's bank accounts that has got a lot of compliance requirements around it right and so historically smaller businesses have never been able to get access to this stuff and what we did and this is where we started was that we opened up access by hosting the entire experience online and so we could ensure that everything was being done properly because we were doing it for you and then that enabled us to open up access so for example if you're like an artisanal cheese yes subscription company yeah you know you're probably not of the scale that you can go and to your bank and get access to this stuff and we gave you access for the got first time. you got you so that's kind of the first problem the second problem that we solve is that you know these are systems that have existed for decades right yeah. and you know they were developed back in the day when pieces of paper were being shipped around the banking system yeah. and that is obviously something that doesn't happen anymore but as a result these are quite batch-based sort of clunky systems that if you're you know running things in a manual way and you have a whole team that just like manages this which makes sense if you're like british gas because you're doing millions of transactions every month but if you're a smaller scale or you're trying to move your business to the cloud you know you need a fundamentally different system to integrate against and and that's what we've done is we've built this kind of more cloud-based technology that makes it really easy to use in a more modern way right and so we actually work with a lot of businesses that are moving over to they've already collected payment this way in the past but they're moving over to us because they want to sort of move their business to the cloud. Well, it's funny. There's a uh, like we had Patrick Collison from Stripe yeah. on the podcast last year. Okay, cool. It's like in a way deeply unsexy, but also a huge. It seems like obviously a huge opportunity because there's just just like the financial plumbing of moving all of the stuff online. Yeah, just feels like a lot of it is. All right, we're kind of moving the old world systems, hacking them so they can work for an online world, but. Mm. It sounds like Stripe or what you guys are doing, it seems to be kind of actually creating kind of something that is more purpose-built for online. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about it in simple terms, you know, payments is what powers the entire economy, right? Like, if you can't actually send money, then it's really hard to transact. And my view on it is that you want to make that whole thing as seamless as possible and as easy as possible, both for the customer and for the business. You're absolutely right. All of these systems were built back in the day before the internet. And as, as with everything, the internet's kind of disrupted things in a massive way. And the model that you need to actually do that well is quite different. And so right. you know, that's, that's really the technology that we build and, and that Stripe builds and a bunch of other payment companies builds. 
where are you today in terms of business in terms of, I don't know size or customer base or you know where cuz if you started this in 2008 2011 2011 sorry yeah so we're eight, 8 years in how are things where are you now <laughs> yeah no it's a, it's been a it's a, been a fun journey so uh we we've scaled nicely you know we're now working with about 40,000 businesses that collect payments through our platform every month. Here, everywhere? Um, well, we started in the UK, right? So yeah. the UK is definitely like our, our core market. So the majority of our merchants are based there. And then, you know, we've been expanding internationally over the last couple of years. So, you know, we now have quite a few customers in, in Europe as well. Got a handful in the US, but still early. Like, you know, it's an area that we're starting to invest in now. And then we've also got some customers further afield in places like Australia as well. So and that kind of goes back to the, the three problems I was talking about. Like the third problem that we solve is around the fact that these systems exist all around the world but they don't talk to each other because every banking system is separate, right? right? And so what we're doing is bringing all of these direct debit systems that exist around the world together into a single interface. And that's enabling us to go and work with businesses that are based in, in other countries. That's been something that we've been really focused on over the last couple of years. And you just raised a bunch of money? Yes, we did, yeah. How much was it? So we raised about $75 million. And that was a... S- Series B, C, D? Uh, series E. So series we've been, E. Yeah, we've been, we've been around for a while. <laughs> so how much money have you raised total now? So in total, it's uh, about $125 million, I think. Wow, $75 million, That's a lot of money. And now you're, you mentioned before we started talking, you're about to open an office here mm-hmm. in the yep. U.S. Yeah, so uh, I mean, we're seeing that as we build out that global network, obviously that opens up a different category of customers. So when we were only able to collect payment in the U.K., you know, we were only really relevant to businesses that were domestically yeah. based in the UK. Whereas as we've been building out this global network, we've become increasingly relevant for businesses with customers around the world, right? It turns out that a lot of those businesses are based in the US. And one of the areas we're seeing the most traction is in the kind of technology space where obviously where we are now today in Silicon Valley and is the kind of the, the heart of that. And so, you know, we want to be close to where the potential customers are. And, it know, does feel like having lived around. in London for many years, a lot of how the stuff works here is pretty antediluvian in terms of, you know, like how, you know, contactless cars are still kind of a new thing here, mm, yeah. if at all. Yeah. Um, and it does feel like the U.S. is in many ways much further behind than Europe yeah, when it comes to financial systems, I, I would agree with that. I mean, you know, just as, as an example, one of the big areas that we focus on is helping businesses that collect invoices, right? And in the US, 70% of invoices are paid using paper checks. So, you know, 70%? 70%. Yeah, it's I don't even have a checkbook. Good job you're not uh, paying any invoices then. Yeah. No, it's generally more B2B there, but the um, yeah, yeah. it's pretty, pretty manual. Pretty. Uh, That's crazy. And when you were uh, a little kid, did you... Say I want to grow up and be a fintech CEO. No, uh, not at all. <laughs> no, I mean, like fintech wasn't really a thing when, <laughs> yeah, yeah, even yeah, yeah. when, like, when we started Go Cardless. It was, still wasn't a thing, right? Where uh, are you from originally? So I'm, I'm from. Well, I was born in Japan. My dad's Japanese, and then my mum's British, and uh, then I, I grew up in in the UK. What part of the UK? A town called Swindon, which is about oh, an, yeah, an hour yes. and a half west of uh, London. Very sexy. Yeah. Very sexy, Swindon. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's actually probably most famous for uh, being um, in the UK office. Yes. There, there was like the UK office was based in a town called Slough, 
which is probably one of the only places that's more depressing than Swindon. Uh, and then the other <laughs> paper mill office that they compete with is uh, based in Swindon. Uh, so that's what put uh, my town on the map. Yeah, exactly. Well, in the US version of the office, yeah. it's they're in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And okay. I can't remember, they have also have a rival office, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. in a equally depressing place and so that's where I that's where I grew up you were the other <laughs> <laughs> and then you went to Oxford and that's where you met your co-founders uh yes well no uh, I did go to Oxford but I met my co-founders slightly differently so I met Matt when I left university so actually all three of us went to Oxford together but we never actually really met each other at Oxford got you um but I met Matt when I left Oxford and we we started working together at a consulting company and then Tom I did actually meet at Oxford, but only very briefly, and then got introduced by some of the guys that I knew from Oxford when we were first starting GoCardless and thinking about right. something in general. Was it an entrepreneurial house? I don't know, did your parents have their um, own businesses or anything? No, or not really. No, no I mean, my of... dad worked for Honda. Uh, my mum was a, an English teacher. I wasn't born in one of those households where, like, you know, the, the family business has been running. Yeah, for, yeah, you're, you like, know. at the till at five years old? Or yeah, no, 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 there was no till. <laughs> And then, so when you start the company in 2011, when did your co-founders leave? And were there were there moments when they left or thereafter where you're like, mm, maybe this isn't going to work? Well, there's kind of two separate questions there. Yeah. Tom and Matt, they left uh, different times. So Tom left uh, in 2013, I think it was. And I think for him, he wasn't excited by the, the business we were building we're building a b2b company right we help yeah. businesses and it's a very different type of company to a b2c business and sure. i think that you know when we when we first started the company we we didn't really know what we were doing right like we what how old was i like 24 or something like that i'd had like two years of professional experience and like, it was clueless and so you know we kind of like started building this company and i think it, it took us a couple of years to realize what it actually entailed and i think that when that happened tom realized it wasn't really for him you know, right and monzo which is a a retail bank right it's like a consumer thing that's yeah. much more his cup of tea and then matt you know left a few years after that i think probably 2015 or something like that and that was a little bit different it was more just that we both started together as like partners right we got to this stage where you know up until fairly late on we didn't have any roles or responsibilities it was like the team wasn't big enough you didn't yeah. really need that and then when it started to scale we needed to kind of have a, a ceo and all these things right and that wasn't the relationship matt and i had you know like i wasn't going to be reporting to matt and matt yeah, wasn't yeah. going to report to me <laughs> yeah, right yeah, yeah. it's just like you know we're, we're super close friends and you know that it just that wasn't the relationship we had so we kind of realized that one of us had to take the lead and the other one needed to take a step back and you know we both were up for it but it was just a, a question of like who was going to do it and i think that Matt always knew that I was a bit more passionate about this one than, right. than he was. So I think he, he kind of gave me the opportunity. Still, you know, Matt's still on the board, for example. Oh, uh, okay. Close. And so, so that's kind of the, the story of the founders. And they're both gone on to do like really cool yeah, yeah. things. So, yeah, yeah. so it's worked out well for everyone. In terms of, you know, have is there times when we thought it's not going to work? Like, yeah, I mean, like the whole time, right? The, uh, <laughs> that, like b- before they left, after they left, you know, you, you have a lot of uh, dark moments. That's kind of part of the journey, right? Is like there's a lot of ups and downs. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. 
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What is funny out here is the founder, the kind of the founder the founder's story is mythologized. Mm. But the more people I talk to, it's like, it's actually a lot of it really sucks. Yeah, I mean, sucks is probably a hard, like a harsh way of putting it. I definitely think that like one of the things that is uh, tricky and, and something I notice in in the Valley in the past is that oftentimes there's a lot of like, everything's going great. Yeah, we're killing it. You know, yeah, up and to the right, yeah, dude. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I have a lot of friends that are out here and that run businesses and and they struggle with that right because the reality is that there it isn't a straight line it's not just always up and to the right and there are times when you know it feels like you don't know what you're doing and you're going to fail you know I, I don't think that that gets talked about as much as it should i think that can be quite challenging but the reality is there are a lot of times when you doubt yourself there are a lot of times when you're not sure if it's going to work there are a lot of times where you don't know what you're doing but equally there's loads of times where you know there's amazing highs and you know it's a bit of a roller coaster right yeah and, and i think that one of the things that i've definitely had to learn how to do and i think is quite important is that you need to learn how to like ride those waves out right not get too excited when the things are, are going well and getting ahead of yourself but equally like not getting too dragged down when things aren't going your way i think you get a build a resilience to it you know yeah and, and so yeah that, that that's been super important and do you have like a coach or mentors because that's the other thing that a lot of people talk about here mm. is there are you know i've talked to several founders who actually have an executive coach people who just talk to people and like in your position and help them ride those waves or just the network of people who have been there done that here mm. who yeah. had taken interest in the yeah. next wave yeah i wouldn't say that i have like a, a single mentor or a single coach or anything like that I, I find that i go to different people for different things and definitely you know i lean on others a lot right you know especially given that the way i always think about it is that you know i'm always the least experienced person in the company because like every given point this is the first time i've been running a company right. with 350 people and you know a year ago it was the first time I was running a company with 250 people and you know and so on so you're always kind of at this situation or where you don't really know what you're doing right because it's the first time you've done it as yeah. a, a first-time founder right it's not like I could, if I went back again and started a company from scratch then I've gone through those stages and so you you need to lean on others a lot and you know I've hired some great people that I, I learn from every day and have my board and the investors and you know they provide a lot of support and then there's more kind of like you know just generally people in the industry or you yeah. know, you know, other people that have 
gone through scaling journeys themselves that you, you, you look to. But I wouldn't say that there's like a, a single person. And how have you found it doing what you're doing in London as opposed to, because having come out here initially mm, yeah, and there is a insularity or this conviction yeah. that if you're going to do something and take over the world, you have to do it here. Mm, yeah. I mean, I think that's changing, right? One of the things that's been really amazing to see in London since we started is is how much the whole ecosystem has developed. Clearly, it's not it's not the same level as yeah. as here. But if you look at the trajectory, I think it's quite interesting because you know when we started, there was basically nothing, right? There was no big success stories. You know, there wasn't really even an understanding of what startups were. So when when we first started, most of my friends thought I was unemployed and dossing around, right? Uh, so <laughs> you know, uh, whereas now it feels very different, um, right? And you've got a lot of companies that are scaling. A lot of companies have already had some big success, and so I, I think it's been really exciting to see that. Will it ever catch up with here? I, I don't know, but the way I think about it is slightly different, which is technology is going to be so pervasive across everything, right? It's like saying the whole economy is going to be in one place. It doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah. I think that what you're just seeing is that technology is permeating more and more of the economy and you're going to see different pockets of strength and growth uh, yeah, across yeah. the world. Um, and so it just so happens, for example, that London has got quite a lot of concentration in fintech and you know, there's a lot of companies that have gotten start and started in that space. But I think each, each region is going to have its own sort of strengths. And did you ever th- have a moment where you're like, I'm not going to do this anymore? Yes, many times. <laughs> more early on than like now. Um, now. Now it kind of feels a bit more robust, uh, but they correlate very closely to uh, <laughs> the, the dark times when you think that you don't know what you're doing and yeah. it's not going to work. And, and look, for, that's one of the reasons why having co-founders is so important, right? You know, you know in the first couple of years, you know, there was on average like once a week at least uh, a time where you were just like oh man we just need to sack this in but you've made commitments to your co-founders you know they they help you pull you through those times yeah um and yeah you get you get through it yeah well it's funny because that's the other thing i've come to realize that there's often history ends up kind of concentrating on one person oftentimes right big companies big successes whatever yeah. but it's always almost always a team oh yeah absolutely yeah yeah which is interesting but you know it ends up getting whittled down yeah, so it is a weird one. I agree. I think that the the founder story is always a little bit overplayed. Definitely, you know, the the founders of companies are really important to the success, but they're by no means the only ones that are involved in building the, 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 these companies, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I, I agree with that. And can we talk about your accident? Sure. What happened? Uh, I had a cycling accident uh, about two and a half years ago, so September 2016 where I went into the back of a car. Uh, yeah, I broke my back and my spinal cord in, was, was injured quite badly. And yeah, so that's kind of left me... Was it compression? Me. Yeah, it was a c- compression. Yeah, exactly. And, and that, so that's left me like paralyzed from just below the chest down. Uh, so now I'm, now I'm stuck in a wheelchair. But yeah, so it's been a challenge for sure. Um, been a lot of adjustment. But, you know, I've been, I've been lucky to, to have yeah. some great support and uh, the, the opportunity to come back. And did having a company actually, I don't know if that would have perhaps made it better because it had something where you have this thing. That yeah, you definitely. Have to do. Uh, it was it was something that helped a lot, right? Both from the perspective of supporting me through the whole experience. You know, um, the board and our investors were really amazing and made sure that you know I got the best care possible and gave me a, a lot of space and support to go and focus on like my yeah. re- rehab and that kind of stuff. 
but then also having something to go back to. Obviously, there's a lot of things that if you're stuck in a wheelchair, you can't do. But, you know, luckily for me, you know, running a tech company, something you can do. It's really important to be able to focus on on the things that you can do rather than sort of dwell on yeah. the things that you can't. So it's a big part of uh, what's helped me through. And then, you know, that and like having just super supportive family. Like my wife's been amazing. Actually, it's, it's funny because I've, I've always thought like if I ever wrote a blog, like this is probably my first post, but the um, I always think that not just related to my accident, but there's always just like an underappreciation of like, not just like the other people involved in building yeah. companies, but the, the, the partners, right? And the family of the, the people that do. Um, and I think that's even more so in terms of going through an experience like I have in terms of uh, the injury that I've sustained. It's very visible, right, that yeah. for me. So people spend a lot of attention and you yeah. know, saying, like, oh, how are you doing? But, you, you know, you, the family goes through just as much. And, yeah, so so I've been very lucky to have very supportive family yeah. as well. So so I think that between the, the family and the, uh, having uh, go-karters to come back to, it's, it's definitely helped me a lot. And has it changed the way you think about what you're working on or the, the, your focus on it or your goals? Yeah, it was, in some ways it was quite like a silver lining of, of the whole thing was that, you know, we've been doing this for eight years now at the, t- at the time of my accident, like it was kind of five years in. Yeah. And you, you kind of get lost in the weeds right yeah. at times and I was forced to take this break, right? So I was out, I was in hospital for like three months. Um, three months? You know, they had to do a lot of surgery. Right. And I had to go through rehab and all this stuff. And then even after that, it was probably a year before I was back full-time at work, right? You know, right. I, was, I kind of went back slowly, but that that was in the long term beneficial in a couple of ways. Like one was that it forced me to take time out and think about, okay, well, what am I doing and what do I care about? Yeah. But then also in going back gradually, I had to basically make myself redundant and then really choose where I'd spent my time and what I focused on. You kind of realize a lot of the things that you were doing, a lot of the time you, and energy you, you were spending were on stuff that didn't need to be done by me. And yeah. what I wasn't really the best person to even do it. And so, you know, that's able helped me to re- rethink the way I do my job. But it's also helped me to think, okay, well, what do I really want to do here? And, you know, if probably made me a little bit less patient in a way right i was just like well look like right you know let's let's go and build something really big here and let's not get into a sense of like you know lulling or you know uh creating a bit more urgency in what we were doing i think yeah. is the other thing that was useful yeah what is interesting and like i now have two kids two and a half years old in four months okay wow congratulations thanks you were just talking about time and how you spend it mm-hmm. it's like with the kids all of a sudden you have yeah. dramatically less time yeah and you have to come very, it's like you kind of wonder what you did with your life before mm, yeah. when you had all this time and energy. Yeah. And all of a sudden you have to kind of completely look at your work day and everything in a completely new way. Yeah. And be like, all right, these the kind of triage, which is, sounds like what you. Yeah, that, that sounds like a very similar experience. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm just like, well, that's stupid. I'm not going to spend my time doing that. Yeah. These are the things that need to happen. Mm-hmm. But you never think about that as like a... It's just interesting how yeah, these need, things It's like a up. forcing function, right? Yeah. So we're 2019 now. Say 2024. Right. Is go-cardless like a... Are you sponsoring a, a football stadium in, in the UK? I mean, how big are you? <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, you know... What's the goal? I mean, I think, I think that f- for me... I don't really think of it like that way. I, I think of it as a journey, right? What we want to do is create the best way to collect recurring payments globally 
and you know help businesses all around the world to do what we've been doing in the UK what gives me energy is when we talk to our customers and hear about how we've impacted their businesses right I want to be able to do that for as as many people as possible so you know I don't see it as like there's no like end goal right it's not like okay if we get to here then right that's me checked out I'm done you know I think it's like how do we continue to build Um, and you know I think I'd love for us to continue on our trajectory and like continue growing really fast and going increasingly international if we were in a position where in three four years time we're an order or two bigger in terms of magnitude than we are today and you know with a much more global footprint i think that'll be pretty exciting but i don't see that as the end goal either right right you kind of you you always want to be reassessing what, what your ambitions are and yeah i remember when we first started like you know our ambitions were like okay how amazing would it be if we collected like a million pounds of volume now we do that probably in a few hours right so it's like right you need to keep on increasing the ambition and was there anything along along the way like an un- unexpected slash kind of obvious ob- obstacle or or something that should have been obvious with retrospect of like oh my god i can't believe this is not happening or this is this function doesn't exist or this thing is standing in our way so like lessons that we've learned about mistakes that we've made or no well more just like i guess because sometimes it just feels like when you look back you're like you know problems that you end up having to solve that you just never thought you would have to solve but or that's things that would just kind of magically unlocked you know Mm. a whole new stream of business or growth or whatever I mean, I wouldn't say that there's like any kind of just silver bullets, right? Yeah. Like we, we've not been, we've definitely not been one of those kind of companies where you, you and you hear about them, right? I remember when um, when we were going through YC, actually, there was Drew Houston, who was the uh, oh, CEO Dropbox. of uh, Dropbox, and he came and gave a talk. And I remember one of the founders in the audience asked a question of like, okay, how did you get your first like 100,000 users or something? Which is obviously what everyone's thinking at the time. Yeah. And uh, and he was like, oh, well, uh, you, we didn't really have to think about that because like we just put like a, li- like a video on like YouTube and then like a million people signed up. And it's like, okay. Well, <laughs> and and, and uh, yeah, we, we weren't, we weren't one of those companies, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Where there was just like one thing that just worked. Um, I'd say that for us, it's, there's lots of things that work really well, but it's like yeah. a combination. Was there anything success. that was like particularly like, I cannot believe this thing needs to be solved or like a kind of quirky, weird thing in this whole world of financial minutia that you guys are trying to sort out that you're like, oh, this is still so dramatically old school or not functioning well yeah i mean well there's a lot of uh there's definitely a lot of things in the details that are just you're just like banging your head against the wall yeah, kind yeah, of thing yeah. and some of them we're, we're, we've been able to change um but they're, they're quite like detail points they're the kind of thing that like makes a big difference to our customers but if i explain them on on here then you'd probably just <laughs> confuse like be boring but i'd say the one thing that that is very surprising is actually the US, right? Where for a country that prides itself on like, you know, no regulation and being a free market and everything, I mean, financial regulation in the US is completely messed up. It's all done state by state. You know, you have to go and like apply to every single state separately to be able to do this stuff. I mean, it's insane. That's probably the one big thing where I'm just like, how is this still the case? Yeah, I feel like people like TransferWise and others have had similar Yeah, yeah. All, every, all fintech companies are the same, yeah. Yeah, well, it's the whole state versus federal. No, it's, well, it's just a, it's a mess. Yeah. <laughs> are you going to write a blog? I don't know. I'm, I get pressure to do it sometimes. Do you? Uh, but 
I'm really bad at writing, so... Uh, well, you're quite eloquent speaking about it. Well, yeah, I'm not very good at writing about it. <laughs> Let's see, maybe one day. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Hiroki for for making the kind of whistle-stop um, whistle on his tour through the West Coast. Uh, he was actually coming from a stag do bachelor party in Vegas, but he didn't look worse for the wear. And he made the stop. He was actually headed off to the airport right after we, we met. But anyhow, I hope you enjoyed it. There's certainly lots to think about and some lessons to be drawn. So that is it. You can find me, as always, in the paper. You can find me online at thetimes.co.uk. And as I said, keep an eye out for that extra pod this week. It's coming. I think you'll really dig it. And you'll hear from me very soon. Bye-bye. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.